Hi everyone, Kevin Goldstein here. Just wanted to bring you a little extra podcast action with the playoffs starting today. Uh, we're going to go around the country and talk to eight experts, one for each of the teams. A little quick conversation, just three questions for each of them, followed by one non-baseball question. We will be back Friday morning with a more traditional episode with a very exciting co-host. And thanks for listening and hope you enjoy the show. Okay, welcome back. We start our postseason tour in alphabetical order with the Atlanta Braves. And joining me is a man who has been covering that team for nearly two decades. He's currently with a little relatively unknown startup called The Athletic. He is David O'Brien. David, how are you? I'm doing good. How about you, man? I'm doing good. We got three questions for you that involve the Braves and one that has nothing to do with baseball. You ready? Right. I think I'm ready okay. for the challenge. Number one. Uh, the Braves got off to a not-so-great start. They had a great final third of the season, winning two-thirds of their games and going 36-18. and 18. Uh, If you take five minutes, you can see that some of the acquisitions, Soler and Rosario, were both great. Uh, Max Fried pitched like an ace down the stretch. What's a low-key change that you noticed that uh, led to this turnaround? Well, you didn't mention Duvall. That's not low-key, but he ends up leading the league in RBIs, which is, I mean, he was he had a phenomenal year. 38 homers, would have had 39 if when had got scrubbed at Houston on a thing where he passed Riley on the base pass. So he actually had 39 <laughs> homers. Um, a low-key, you know, it's a cliche to talk about team chemistry, but I think it's so overwhelming with this team how good that chemistry is that that's a big reason why they were able to make those four trades at the deadline, plus Jock Peterson a few weeks before the deadline. And every one of those guys fits seamlessly into the clubhouse and performed better than he had with his previous team. Every one of them. Um, Jock eventually lost playing time when they made the trades at the deadline and got Rosario, Soler, and Duvall. But before that, Jock had been playing every day uh, and leading off to play in right field. So he stepped in and kind of picked up some of the slack uh, – the considerable slack in Acuna's absence. And then when they made those moves, that was a, that was a big difference. Uh, and then the starting pitching, you know, with uh, Freed and, and, and Charlie Morton down the stretch has just been, Freed's been best of his career, phenomenal the last two months. Uh, the Braves are in the playoffs for the fourth straight year. Uh, Brian Snitker has been the manager for all of those seasons. You've been covering the Braves for all of those seasons. Have you noticed any any tendencies or changes to how he manages playoff games as opposed to regular season ones during that time? Huh. Probably not. There weren't there weren't enough games to judge it on early <laughs> with the two first round exits. You know, seventeen they didn't think they belonged there. They got in there and they and nobody expected them to do anything against the Dodgers and that Dodgers kicked their ass. I mean, that was the way it should have been. They were a better team. Um, two thousand eighteen. I, I would notice one difference. Two thousand eighteen. They out 
they outsmarted themselves by trying to, they looked at the split. Soroka was so much better at, on the road that year than at home. It was his rookie year, his only, his only full season, and he was phenomenal on the road. So what they did was they had home field advantage, and they held him back to start game three in St. Louis. They started Fulte and Keichel in the first two, or Keichel and Fulte in the first two games. That bit him in the ass because Soroka was by far their best pitcher and pitched by far. Neither one of those other two guys pitched well in the postseason. Uh, Fulte had one good game, I should say, in game two. But it ended up really hurting them by not pitching uh, uh, Soroka until game three because he went toe-to-toe with Wainwright in game three in St. Louis. Wainwright, had I don't think, had lost all season in St. Louis. And the Braves won that game in game three. Um and Soroka should have pitched twice in that series. You will not see them make that mistake again. They uh, are not going to try to be cute with the home road splits and that kind of thing, and they're going to pitch their best two pitchers uh, on the road to start this series in Milwaukee with, without even hesitation. You know, It's going to go with Charlie Morton in game one, Freed in game two. And they could have gone either way with those either, uh, too, because Freed's actually been the best pitcher in the second half, but Charlie, with his considerable postseason pedigree, uh, they went with Charlie in game one. Either one of them could, would be on regular rest if he wanted to start game five. Uh, last baseball question. You, you talked earlier about the, the, the clubhouse chemistry. Uh, from the outside, they don't always seem like a super high-energy team at times. And, and Ronald Acuna was the guy who kind of brought that energy and those vibes. Who's the guy kind of keeping the energy going right now in the clubhouse? Well, two, Acuna's not there. Ozzy Albies was every bit as energetic as Acuna. They were mm-hmm. one, two. Those two were like our, our best friends, and they were both just live wires. So Ozzy has never slowed down. Um Acuna was just really visible because he was always doing something like a home run or a catch or something. But Ozzy is a is a pepper pot. But the the guy that is behind the scenes doing it and doing it in the clubhouse and all that is is a Guillermo Heredia of all people. Really, this guy this guy is nonstop. I mean, he is he his his contributions. He he's made some great catches for them and had some big hits. But his contributions have been the biggest contribution has been what he's done in the clubhouse. And little things like if you look at the video when Max Fried had the walk-off hit, there was a rare occurrence of a guy running on the field and passing first base before Fried got there carrying two plastic swords, and that was Heredia, <laughs> carrying two pink swords onto the field. He is just he does some crazy stuff, but it's just pushes the envelope, but just enough not enough to go over the line. And uh, and what he does does so much for this team that they love having him. And Jock Peterson's also been huge in the clubhouse as far as keeping things loose. He's a really uh, eccentric kind of guy that says something or does something all the time that keeps guys going too. So those two, Heredia and uh, and Peterson, have been the guys in the clubhouse that have, that have been the high energy guys. It's time for your non baseball question. All right. Uh, so many baseball beat writers have absolutely horrible musical taste. You I do are, not. You are not one of those people. <laughs> uh, you've, you've a wide ranging taste. You listen to a lot of very good music. Uh, you are flying. You're currently at your luxurious accommodations in Atlanta. You're flying to Milwaukee tomorrow for the first yep. games of the series. Uh, I'm assuming because you're out of Atlanta, you're a Delta person. Yep. Um, I assume because you have your life, you have diamond status. Um, you're going to board diamond, but Not I'm, a diamond? Million, I'm a million miler and I, I go back and forth between gold and platinum because you know, it's baseball, hard. We yeah. Baseball. We don't fly every day. Like business travelers yeah. who go up to New York and don't even spend the night there. 
not anymore. They've cut back on those. But people don't realize we go somewhere and stay for three or four days, so we don't get as many flights. And especially out of Atlanta, I fly direct everywhere, so I don't get connecting flights. So anyway, that's so, why I go between gold and platinum, even though I fly all the time. So you're going to board early. You might yep. get you might get that upgrade. Yeah. Uh, when you settle in, you're going to you might do a little work. But at some point on this flight, you're going to put on your headphones, close your eyes and try to relax to some music. What oh. are you going to listen to? Oh, man. Oh, see that I hate when I get this question because I have too many albums and groups to narrow it down. But you got to hit play right now. What do you got downloaded? Well, I tell you what. Go? I tell you what. I've got an iPod. I'm a dinosaur, and I loaded two iPods about ten, twelve years ago, fifteen years ago, maybe. And those babies have not died yet, and I don't have to change them. So I've got <laughs> thousands of songs on my iPods that I've never touched since then. Except wait, I you play. run around with two full iPods? They're tiny. The Nano and the other one, I, and I use them when I work out. So I, that's what I take on the road. And when I do listen to on a plane, I used to take CDs everywhere, a book of CDs. But you can't get a damn rental car anymore with a CD player. So it's worthless. So the iPod, and, and a lot of them, you can't even play the iPod on them anymore. I mean, I'm a dinosaur. So you have to play your phone. But fortunately, anything you buy on Amazon is downloaded automatically. So you can play anything you bought from Amazon. You can play on a on a, on a uh, Bluetooth on a car. So yeah. My long-winded answer. Um, I, I will. Uh, I'd be better off just looking at the stack of albums that I have sitting here, right at my turntable. Hold on, I'm just going to grab them. Hold on. Oh, I'm, I'm grabbing them right now, and and I'm just going to read them because I just on the last on the last road trip. Last road trip, I went to San Diego and San Francisco and bought vinyl in both places. <laughs> Are you so you're a vinyl snob as well? Oh yeah, okay. I buy CDs if the if like some new ones where they're overpriced because they're trying to get all the hipsters to pay thirty dollars for for an album. So <laughs> I might buy a new CD, but but I buy anything older is vinyl. You know, I buy a lot of used vinyl. I got a buddy that runs a great record store in Atlanta, Ella Guru. If anybody's here, um, but right here I got here my vinyl at the turntable right now. I got. I got Prince's The Truth album, which is a, an acoustic thing that he put out post, uh, post uh, since he's died. Um, I got From Elvis in Nashville, his stuff he did with Nashville recording sessions, his last one. I got Betty LeVette, the Muscle Shoals sessions in 1972. I got Laurie Anderson, uh, a Laurie Anderson album. I got a new one by S.G. Goodman, really good, uh, produced by Jim James from... I don't know. You, you're probably familiar with Jim James from sure. my, my Morning Jacket. He produced it. It's great. Uh, I got an old Black Crows reissue, 180 gram vinyl of the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. I got a Turnpike Troubadours country album. I got a new artist, uh, Indigo D'Souza, who's from uh, North Carolina, where I was born and raised. I got a Frank Sinatra album right here, Where Are You? Uh, Gordon Jenkins and his orchestra cut from the Capitol back when he was doing the uh, concept albums for Capitol. And I got a jazz album, Antonio Carlos Jobim, um, and three John Coltrane albums sitting here, and a Chet, Par a Chet Baker in New York album was what I was playing last night while I was writing. So there you go. Uh, and I and I have a whole bin of, of hip hop that I that I, uh, I could run through that, you know. But I'm, I tend I lean towards the older uh, hip hop, Public Enemy, uh, uh, guys like. Uh, uh, you know, all the earlier stuff, Tribe mm -hmm. Called Quest, uh, even Eminem, uh, Beastie Boys, love, love Beastie Boys, seen them a ton of times. And then I'm a huge REM fan. 
Huge replacements fan. Um, huge drive-by truckers, and especially Jason Isbell, who's a good friend of mine. Um, Name uh, dropper. Well, I, I love Jason, man. We're, he's, he's a Braves fan, so we met, and we've been friends ever since. I text him. He's, he's, he's the best dude, the most down-to-earth guy you'd ever meet that's a superstar. So uh, I'm looking forward to his new album coming out, which is uh, which he did with all the uh, Georgia covers of Georgia bands. He did it in tribute after Georgia went blue in the election. So that's I'm looking forward to seeing hearing that. But I mean, I got whole bins of jazz, uh, soul, R and B, I'm hardcore how, how, blues. How, how many records do you think you hardcore have? country? I love old country, hardcore country. Johnny Cash, George Jones, Hank Williams. How many albums? I don't know, thousands, and I got more than thousands of CDs. And how do you organize them? Is it by artist? Alphabetical. By... Well. I do. Okay, alphabetical is the easy answer, but my question, so here's the question. Not, not, like, not, not alphabetical. Do, I got, I got how, country and how within do you orga- country. How do you organize within the artist? So if you, if you have 11 Johnny Cash albums, how do you organize those 11? I don't. I don't. Okay. It's too much. I go, John, I go within country, I do alphabetical. Within jazz and blues, I put that in, in that's like four bins. I got those alphabetical. I got all my new stuff. It's just lined up that I haven't even played yet that I buy all the time. I buy more than I can even play. I got punk. Uh, you know, misfits, um, uh, cramps, the cramps, people like that. Where do you categorize Lori Anderson? That's a, uh, that would just go in rock, (laughs) general rock. Okay. Okay. But I've also got people like in rock. I've got, uh, you know, I put like rock and, and, uh, like soul singers. I put that all together because that's really hard to to classify. Like I'll have Marvin Gaye in the same bin with Lori Anderson, you know, Mm -hmm. I'd split it up and put blues and jazz. And even that's hard to define sometimes like Ray Charles, you know? Mm-hmm. You see, blues, jazz. He's got a couple country albums, but is he rock and roll? So, but I've I've got him in blues and jazz. Uh, James Brown, huge James Brown fan. Uh, so anyway, I run the gamut, man. I'm all over the place. Oh, I know, I know. Uh, I, I I love music, as you can tell. I'm passionate. oh, I know that. That's why I wanted to ask you about it. <laughs> that's my passion. I'm not jaded on music like I am sports. <laughs> 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 just like all of us yeah. uh david have a wonderful time in milwaukee have safe travels right. uh if you want to follow david on twitter uh you go to d o'brien atl and david thanks for helping us preview the braves postseason you got it i think i'm gonna put on savannah right now <laughs> see you later man welcome back our tour of the postseason continues to the Boston Red Sox and joining us is just one of the goddamn sweethearts of the business. One of my favorite people in the world when it comes to baseball writers. He is the covers the Red Sox for the Boston Globe and joining us from what I'm sure are luxurious suburban accommodations in Dedham, Massachusetts. It's Alex Spear. Alex, how are you? I am delighted to be referred to as a goddamn sweetheart, which seems like a deliciously oxymoronic term. So thank you. That's like that's going either on my either on my business card or my tombstone. You could do both. <laughs> fair, fair. Are you ready for your questions? Let's do it. Number one, Alex Cora. Uh, obviously a great 2019. Not around in 2020. Things didn't go so well back in 2021. Things went really well. Uh, can you explain kind of the, just the impact Alex Cora has on this team? It's a fascinating one, and sometimes it's difficult to to really identify it. Right as as we know, manage the whole manager thing is uh, is a complex subject that has uh, that has um, that, that puzzles all of us. What what we do <laughs> know is that like 
I, I think that Alex has a unique ability to connect with people. Like he's an incredibly empathetic individual who's able to put himself in a lot of different people's shoes um, and to recognize not only who they are, but sometimes what they need. And uh, on top of that, he's also extremely intelligent, as as I'm sure you know, Kevin, very well uh, in terms of um, in terms of understanding how information can be made valuable. Um, to those people and communicating it in remarkably effective ways. This is someone who's bilingual, who came to the United States as a college freshman and nearly left the country because he was so uncomfortable uh, in an English-speaking culture that he thought about going back home to Puerto Rico, but worked through it to become incredibly fluent, incredibly thoughtful in two languages. And um, I, I think that he's he is now uh, he's he's now a polyglot because he now also speaks the language of modern baseball data um, in a way that is relatable and interesting and applicable to players um, while also just connecting with them on a human level. So uh, I think that at at his best, uh, the ability to the ability to communicate is incredibly helpful to getting players to perform at something uh, close to peak potential, right? Like there are a number of players who under Alex were very talented already, you know, Mookie, getting Mookie Betts, getting Xander Bogarts, getting Rafael Devers, you're getting some really good players, getting Eduardo Rodriguez. There, There's a ton of talent there. Uh, but, you know, the fact is that a lot of those guys achieved new levels of uh, new levels of performance, sometimes tapping into powers that they didn't necessarily know that they had uh, beforehand. And this year, I think we saw it again with Kike Hernandez and with Hunter Renfro being kind of tasked with having greater responsibility than they'd had in their more in their more narrowly defined roles in the past. Um, and they responded very well to that um, in part because of uh, in part because of how Alex communicates and in part um, because of the effectiveness that he has in terms of um, in terms of connecting an entire organization, making sure that um, stuff that happens in the analytics department uh, doesn't remain siloed there, but instead like finds its way in casual conversation that is accessible um, to a lot of different people. Second question: We are speaking on Wednesday afternoon. Last night, the Red Sox won the wild card game against the Yankees. Nate Eovaldi started as he should have, their best pitcher. Winner go home. He pitched very, very well. Uh, he's also been their only consistently good starter this year. Um, now they have to start going to a playoff series with the Rays. How are they going to line up their rotation? And, and did you feel that the pull in the wild card game, which felt a little early, was partially to set him up for maybe an earlier showing in the division series with Tampa? Uh, I'll start with the second question. I did not feel like that, uh, like pulling Evaldi at that point was related to anything but Alex Cora kind of trying to make sense of a format that he'd never been a part of, right? Like he had, this was his first go round in the wild card, in the, in the wild card game and Nate Evaldi third time through the order, the numbers, you know, there's, he got snelled, right? Nate Evaldi mm -hmm. got mm -hmm. snelled yesterday um, because, uh, because Alex Gore did not want to see a decline in, he did not want to wait to see the decline in uh, the, 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 he didn't want to wait to see catastrophe unfold he wanted to uh he wanted to act before potential catastrophe so i, I think you know evaldi does uh evaldi's numbers do tick down as anyone's do in the third time through the order he had a lot of bullpen options at his disposal um and so after rizzo homers and aaron judge it's really bad contact gets on base with a single john carlos stanton had had a great swing against evaldi uh both in uh, both in the first inning of 
yesterday's game as well as in his at-bats in the previous game that Evaldi started against the Yankees. So it was, let's let's get someone else uh, focused on this guy who is uh, who looks like he can knock down a park. And, you know, Stanton still nearly parked out and knocked down a park, but yeah. he did so with such ferocity that, like, it allowed the Red Sox to throw out a runner who was advancing too aggressively. So uh, I guess that's... Uh, that's one for serendipity. Um, but in terms of uh, in terms of the rest of the Red Sox rotation, it's weird. Uh, they their defense is horrible, right? So their their pitching staff is actually depending on what you know what flavor of metrics you like, probably quite a bit better than it's normally uh, popularly understood. Like Eduardo Rodriguez, if you were to uh, if you were to stick him in a vacuum or you know. Uh, which would be very uncomfortable for poor Eduardo Rodriguez through enough <laughs> in his life. Um, but if you were to if you were to put him in a theoretical environment based on the quality of contact against him and the swing and miss rates and the limited number of walks that he has, he'd be a really good pitcher in the second half of the year. He'd probably be uh, he'd probably be one of the best pitchers in the American League. The fact of the matter is, the Red Sox defense this year has been awful and so you have a massive in you have a massive disparity between things like ex-woba and woba and between uh in, in between dra and era and stuff like that and so uh he's a really good pitcher he's probably going to be the game one starter uh beyond that it'll be awfully interesting to see chris sale whether or not they go to chris sale in game two he would be going on uh, on at that point normal rest after a very short start on Sunday in the uh, in the season finale he's pitched well in Tampa in the past sale has looked good in terms of fastball slider uh, his changeup has been awful and he needs to either massively improve that pitch or stop throwing it um, <laughs> he I, I don't think that sale is a guy who's working deep into games right now because he is uh, he's functionally been a two pitch pitcher. Um, and I wouldn't give him a third time through the order. Uh, but the other alternative for for a game two would be uh, would be Nick Pavetta, I suppose. And Pavetta was Pavetta is again. There's uh, the the terrible, terrible Red Sox defense this year has created a, a significant disparity between um, expected results and actual results. Uh, but Pavetta has been amazing actually at uh, at Tropicana Field in a few starts this year. Really, really good against the Rays. And so I think you know the Red Sox have to kind of wrestle with the question of which of those two guys they would want for Game Two, which would also kind of increase their availability with Pavetta. If you have him start in game two, you can also layer on some bullpen innings from him elsewhere in the series. Um, whereas I don't think you can do that with sale. Your Chris sale leads us to the, your final Red Sox question, which is uh, in, in a pregame presser. Uh, someone asked Alex Cora about the risk that the team was taking by not having reached the, the vaccination threshold. Can you explain what those risks are in the postseason with them not reaching the threshold? And do you ever, I know that they don't really talk about it, but is there any sense among the vaccinated players of frustration that they're facing these risks? So to me, I, I think that uh, the, the biggest risk is related to someone being made uh, unavailable for the uh, for a postseason series based on being a close contact uh, with someone who tests positive for COVID-19. If you're unvaccinated in a close contact, then you have to be quarantined for a week. And if you are uh, if you're vaccinated in a close contact, you do not have to be quarantined unless uh, unless you test positive. So you there's an increase in testing that occurs, but there is uh, but there is a decreased risk 
of being a close contact. Of course, if there is a positive case that enters into um, your environment, then there's a greater risk of a bigger outbreak, which is something that uh, that was kind of that occurred in horrific fashion for the Red Sox as a massive outbreak swept through their team from late August to mid-September, including during a series that occurred in Tampa Bay. Um, is there frustration on the part of some players? I talked to the one player, Adam Adovino, talked to me on the record and said that it was frustrating for him. He loves his teammates. He loves, you know, he has, uh, he's, he really enjoys the group that he's with. But he was frustrated by the fact that, um, that Josh Taylor, uh, that Josh Taylor had been put into close contact quarantine, even without testing, without testing positive. And so a bullpen that was depleted by a few different members who did test positive uh, at the time, Matt Barnes, Hirokazu Sawamura, Martin Perez, um, among others, uh, dealt with further loss, another significant absence by virtue of someone who had simply chosen not to be vaccinated. So uh, there is at least in some corners, like at least there there was uh, some measure of frustration in the middle of the outbreak. Um, but uh, whether or not I, it's not really a palpable thing, um, I don't think that uh, that exists for the duration of the playoffs. Um, I, this is also a, a strange thing to say, but um, so many of them tested positive during the season that mm-hmm. um, I mean, I, 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 it changes, I guess it changes the risk calculus of uh, of how many could be sidelined due to COVID tests or con- or uh, or close contact status during the postseason, which is a super weird way of looking at it, but uh, <laughs> it's it's a thing. Are you ready for your non-Red Sox question? Sure. You're a Harvard man. You graduated <laughs> from Harvard. You graduated magnum cum laude. You were captain of the debate team. That doesn't make you better than me, by the way. <laughs> uh, and yet here you are wasting your life on this bullshit. What should you be doing with your life? <laughs> uh, that's uh, that is a fucking awesome question. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so first of all, I am first of all, I would like to be very clear that I am not better than you, and that I think that, uh, and that I think that you are probably better than me, uh, and uh, you are a wise man whose counsel I have sought on many occasions, and um, and so I would I would like to I would like to begin there, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> What should I be doing with my life? So the thing that I wanted to do with my life was equally frivolous, which was being a travel writer, um, which uh, is something that I actually did in college, yeah. but that did not pan out in my uh, in my post collegiate life, um, leading me down this road to the uh, to the uh, to a couple of unpleasant jobs, and then thinking, what would I like to do? Deciding on this one, but um, I, it's a it's a great question, Kevin. No matter the the ambition is always to be better and to be better for other people, which is something that does not need to be limited to one's profession. <laughs> so I, I, I'm going to follow this up because I know you did do some travel <laughs> writing before. If someone went to you and said, "Hey, Alex, you've done some travel writing. You're you you understand travel. I saved up some money. I want to go on a trip. Where should I go? What would be the first thing you'd say?" So the difficulty is that it's been more than I'm I'm now a middle-aged person. So like the exciting places Aren't to which I've all? traveled, yeah, uh, getting more more aged and less middle by the by the day in the uh, in the pandemic. But um, I would say that the I, I've I've been very like I I've loved the places that I have traveled. Um, I had such a great time in Southeast Asia on my honeymoon. I think that Angkor Wat. Uh, now looms is like the greatest single travel destination that I've ever experienced in my life. Um, and uh, in part because it was going there with my wife right after uh, right after our marriage. But, um, you know, it was uh, that is that is I, I think going to 
um, a culture and experiencing a history about which you know as little as possible, uh, that is as far removed as possible from your own, um, is, you know, that is, that's the, one of the most rewarding things that you get to do as a traveler. Alex, I want to thank you for coming on. I hope to uh, certainly have you on again for a longer discussion. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe it can be therapy. You can just offer me therapy now because your question has sent me down a very interesting road that is uh, that is not going to have any exit sign in sight. So thank you for that, Kevin. Always a delight. If you want to follow Alex on Twitter as the Red Sox play the Rays, he is at Alex Spear, S-P-E-I-E-R. And uh, you can... Tweet at him and let him know that he's not better than you either for his fancy Ivy League degree. Alex, thanks for coming on. And I will agree with any one of you who <laughs> tweets at me thusly. But thank, thank you, Kevin. It's always a joy. Welcome back. Our tour through the postseason heads to the greatest city in America, Chicago, Illinois. And returning to the show is our favorite. He is the co-host of the Locked on Sox podcast, which can be found wherever you find your podcast. And also going to be live on The Score Sunday night, I'm told. 670 in Chicago. And, you know, if you don't listen, you can go on the internet and listen there. But it is the wonderful Herb Lawrence. Herb, how are you? Doing well, Kevin. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Are you ready That's for good. your questions? I am ready. Thank you for that great <laughs> intro, too. Yes, 670 <laughs> score on Sunday night. <laughs> Your first Chicago White Sox question. Chicago White Sox kind of ran away with the Central and kind of finished the year in cruise control, going 39 and 34 in the second half. Do you have any concern about them kind of refinding their edge? Not really, because I think that Tony LaRussa and staff were trying to give these guys extra rest if needed be. So Tim would have a little tweak, he would go on the IL. Same thing with Lucas Giolito and Lance Lynn. So this was mostly because of rest. Um, when they had their top six guys in there, being Jose Abreu, uh, Anderson Mancada, uh, Grandal, Robert, and then Eloy Menes, that team was a hitting machine. And with the top three guys going with Lynn, Giolito, and Cease, I'm not worried. If those guys play at their potential, we're good to go. And that's what they've done when they had those top six in and one of those three starters. Speaking of Lance Lynn, your second question is about Lance Lynn. It was named uh, just a little bit ago that Lance Lynn will be starting game one in Houston. Uh, Lance Lynn is a fastball pitcher. He throws about four or five different kinds of fastballs, but they're all fastballs. Mm -hmm. The Houston Astros hit fastballs. They have a, a history when Lynn was in Texas, as well as the time of the White Sox, of getting to Lynn pretty well, including for six runs over four innings this season in a game in Houston. Are you okay with Lance Lynn starting game one? Is that how you would have done the rotation? Yes. I think it is your best pitcher. The White Sox best pitcher is Lance Lynn this year, and I know the familiarity with Houston is kind of scary. I would have went with Carlos Rodon if everything being equal, Carlos Rodon was the guy that showed up before the All-Star game and a little bit after that because he dominated him in two starts. But since Lance Lynn is the ace of the White Sox this year, even though Lucas Giolito had a good second half of the season, I would have went with him as the, the starter, as Tony La Russa did. Because if you do get that game, I think you have uh, found money there. Because Lucas Giolito, if you guys watched last year versus the A's, that guy was possessed. And he turned on the <laughs> the guy, the the obsessed maniac that he was versus the Oakland A's. And I, 
I want that guy pitching game two with the game in hand. And if we're down, I know that Lucas Giolito is going to give up performance that's going to be great, make us come back one-to-one here in Chicago. Final White Sox question. Uh, on your first appearance on the show, you were highly critical of Tony La Russa, and it was fair. It was fair criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, we can all agree there are some bad things about Tony La Russa, the person. Um, at the same time, here they are in the postseason, and he's led them to a central title. Can you separate the man from the job he does from the team? And maybe more importantly, should you? Um, I wouldn't have hired the guy because the man was so checkered. Mm-hmm. But my thing with managers is that their biggest problem or their biggest thing that they have to do with the team is make sure the clubhouse comes together Make sure that these players respect each other, respect the game, and like each other and play at a premium level. And that's what Tony has done. The ins and outs, the during the game stuff, I don't think is as important with Tony LaRusso or any manager. I mean, I see people already blaming uh, Aaron Boone for last night's loss. I mean, their pitcher didn't go three <laughs> innings. How's it? How's he supposed to do anything? And they scored two runs. Those things, you know – you can cause your team to lose a game, of course, but I think they're very, I think they're overblown when we talk about in-game decisions of a manager. Tony Roos has done a great job of getting that clubhouse ready to play, and these moves that he's done down the stretch I think will benefit the White Sox because they'll get the proper rest down the stretch that they need, and they'll come in here fresh. Like They didn't want to exhaust themselves to get home field advantage for this series versus Houston. They could have did that. You know, a lesser team and maybe a lesser manager would have done that. But especially with the White Sox home record this year being the best in the American League. But they say, you know what, let's get to the postseason healthy. I think that's more important than having the home field advantage. And I think that's where Tony La Russa shines at. Are you ready for your non-baseball question? Or- I am ready. Chicago-style deep dish pizza. Worst thing? Or worst thing ever? It is not that bad, actually. I, <laughs> as anybody in Chicago will tell you, it's not it's their preferred pizza, but it is a delicious, delectable dish, much better than that Jack's or Tombstone-style pizza they have out there in New York. That's trash, by the way. They just warm up the pizza that's been sitting out for every for like three hours. Oh, you want a slice? Yeah, forget about it. Here's a slice of New York style. Ours is made fresh. Yes, you have to wait an hour for it. Yes. But when it comes out, especially if you go to a quality in, in a place, like if you go down here to Giordano's, I know it's uh, talked about a lot that it's not great. Giordano's is fine. Same thing with Gino. Same thing with Malnati's, Pequod's, whatever you go. It's an acquired taste, and I know we're kind of, you know, got our dander up because we're trying to fight all these people saying our thing is like lasagna or a, a tomato bowl. But it's if you've tried I, the right I'm one, I'm from Chicago. I, I, I'm a Chicagoan, and it's it's wallboard with a pound of cheese. If you, if you have your pizza choice, what are you getting? Um, it's tavern style, tavern style mm-hmm. cheese and sausage, pretty much from myself, or just cheese. I don't like a lot of toppings. I don't like to go wild because I think. Any pizza is the best thing about a pizza is the sauce. So that's the number one thing. And I like to taste some good sauce. Then it's the dough. Then it's the cheese at the end and the toppings. If you want to follow Herb on Twitter during the White Sox postseason run, 
you go to Exnerwall 23. Which is, and that's Lawrence backwards, followed by 23, which was the uniform of a former Chicago Bulls player. Uh, and if you want to listen to Lawrence ramble more about the White Sox, you check out his Locked on Sox podcast. Herb, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, Kevin. How's uh, DeKalb? It's uh, like Chicago. It's kind of gloomy and cool. At least you have the NIU Huskies out there, though. Uh, is that a win? Yes, and Pizza Pros, too. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. The tour around the postseason continues as we go to Houston, Texas. And joining us to talk about the Astros is the beat writer from The Athletic from his palatial estate in Houston, Texas. It's Jake Kaplan. Jake, how are you? I'm doing great, Kevin. I don't know if this is palatial, but but uh, yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> are you doing great? Like really great? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that was... Uh, you never good. strike me as someone doing great. Uh, good. I'm doing good. I'm doing well. Yeah, well. that's okay. We'll go with well. Uh, are you ready for your three questions about the Astros and one question not about the Astros? I'm ready for the first three. I'm a little scared about the, the fourth one, but yeah, let's oh. do it. Well, let's start with number one. And that is, uh, how much of a storyline still is the cheating scandal in the sense that, you know, I think from, it's going to be a big story no matter where they play, uh, it during the postseason, but for, you know, for, for, you, how much of a story is, is still going to be 2017 and then trying to, I don't know what you want to say, put that away or put it beside or or maybe just win a legit one and recover from it? Like, like how much of that storyline is still there? You know, I think it's there. Um, they make a deep run. It's definitely there, right? Like kind of just like what you just alluded to, the chasing the legit title narrative will be a thing for sure. Um you know, throughout the season, it kind of come. It, it kind of depends on you know. Obviously, like if they're playing the Yankees or they're playing the Dodgers, it's a it's a story. But um, recently, it seems like it hasn't. You know, there hasn't been a ton of talk about it. Um, four years removed from it happening, and and a couple years now from the story coming out. Um, so yeah, I think it, it just kind of depends on on how things go. Uh, right now, it's not really. Um, been discussed much um you know i don't think white Sox are talking about it much either you know i think with the distance from it it's uh it's a little less top of mind and also you know i think people have realized like hey the astros are, are still really good even though they did cheat in 2017 their players are also really talented too um so uh and they have some new players too like there's only five or six guys from that team so um for me, uh, it, it's kind of off and on how much it's discussed, but right now it's it's not discussed a ton. The Astros had a, had really just one problem during the first half of the year, and that was a bullpen problem. Um, they had a very inconsistent at times, not very well performing bullpen in in the bridge innings, getting to Ryan Presley, who's been very good. Uh, they made a, a a number of moves at the trade deadline to try to address that. Um, and then in September, they still kind of had bullpen problems, um, particularly in the walk department. Is the bullpen still an issue for them and something that you think worries them heading into the postseason? Yes, I definitely think it's an issue. Um, maybe a little less so in a five-game series against a right-handed dominant lineup like the White Sox. Um, you know, you look at where 
their guys have had issues. It's primarily against left-handed hitters. Uh, you look at Ryan Stanek, Kendall Graveman, Christian Javier splits, and you'll see that. Um, but it's definitely overall an issue, and I think they should be creative in using starters and relief again to get um, to kind of bypass those issues. But I'm not confident they're going to do that based on how they're lining up the rotation. Last Astros question. Uh, Dusty Baker is the Astros manager. Uh, he just led a team to a division title. Um, he led a team to the ALCS last year. He has been, in my opinion, kind of a really great distraction almost from the 2017 story. A guy who obviously had nothing to do with it. A guy who can say the right thing. Um, I think he's been really good for them on a PR level. But he's also you know, managed them to two very successful seasons. He is not, you know, confirmed to be their manager next year. Do you think he'll be their manager next year? You know, I really don't know. I think um, the fact that he doesn't have a contract as we speak here on October 6th suggests that it really depends on how this postseason goes, which is probably unfair, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, but um, I don't know. I could see it going either way, really. I think... Um, you know, he's he's done a, a, a good job if you look at the win totals. Um, you know, I, there's definitely been some criticisms of his bullpen management or his lineup construction. Um, you know, Kyle Tucker batting seventh or, or, or sixth or sometimes fifth. Um, but it's not like there's bad hitters hitting in front of him either. Um, so, yeah, I, I really I wish I had a better answer for you. I think I might have a better answer for you in a week or two. But but right now, I, I, it seems really up in the air. Well, I'm going to follow this up then. Why do you think it's up in the air? Um, I think there's the weird dynamic of, uh, like, you know, the GM didn't pick the manager, right? Um, I think Jim Crane kind of created this weird dynamic when he hired um, his manager before his GM. Uh, and it was always going to come to this point at some point. Um you know, and there are, there are, um, you know, Dusty is definitely old school, right? And the Astros are viewed as the analytics team, one of the analytics, you know, at the forefront of analytics and using information. So I think there's always like that sense in the back of everyone's mind, like, could they be maximizing that a little bit more um, with more, a more progressive manager? And now your, your non-Astros question. Um, during my time in Houston there, you, you and I got to know each other a little bit. We, we, shared a drink and broke some bread once in a while. Um, so I know that you own a PS4. What is the last really good video game you played? Um, the Spider-Man game. But to be honest with you, I don't think I've turned on my PS4 in a year. Oh, um, Jake. Yeah, I've been uh, slacking on the PS4. Tried to read more books. Uh, What's the last good book you read? Well, I've been slacking on that recently, too. <laughs> Um, but I, I did, I did re a really good uh, stock market book. Let me see what it's called. Oh, um, God. It's so boring. Richer, Wiser, Happier by William Green. That, that was pretty good. If you're listening to the podcast, do not read a book about the stock market that Jake recommends. <laughs> Jake, I want to thank you for coming on. I know you have a, a workout to get to. And uh, if people want to follow you on Twitter, I don't have your window open. What's your Twitter address? It's uh, Jake M. Kaplan. Um, someone stole Jake Kaplan before I got to Twitter, uh, so I had to put the M, the middle initial in there. And the M stands for? 
Michael. Excellent. Thanks for coming on, Jake. Yeah, thanks for having me. Welcome back. We move on to Los Angeles and the Los Angeles Dodgers, who had a dramatic 3-1 to victory over the Cardinals last night in one of the better wildcard games in my memory, certainly. And joining us to talk about the Los Angeles Dodgers is Fangraph's very own Jay Jaffe in Brooklyn, New York. Jay, how are you? Uh, a little tired from staying up to watch the wild card game and uh, then get the kid off to school, but other than that, not too bad. Before I ask you Dodgers questions, like I, I you know, I know you have morning responsibilities. If this went to extra innings, would you have? Would you? How long would you have stuck with this? I mean, it was the Dodgers game. I wasn't gonna. I, I wasn't gonna turn it off. Um, because I, I couldn't. I, there's no way I could have slept. Uh, <laughs> watched, you know, with, exactly. without without knowing the result. Um, you know, having grown up a Dodgers fan, it, it's you know, there's no secret that that. Uh, I'm a little bit more emotionally invested in that outcome than uh, than I would be, uh, um, you know, if it were two teams that I n- had no rooting history for. Even though I, I do try to wear my professionalism hat here, uh, <laughs> you know, when I'm when I'm covering the team, it's uh, uh, the Jaffe family is heavily invested in Dodgers stock. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> your uh, your first Dodgers question is, um, you know, the big story going into the playoffs was uh, Max Muncy's game one sixty two injury. Uh, they reacted to it in the wild card game uh, by playing Beatty at first base. Hey, we had a great second half uh, and putting Bellinger in center field, who had honestly one of the better games of his season last night. Uh, is this what you think we'll see going forward? I think we'll see a lot of it. I mean, I think when when there's a lefty on the mound, uh, you'll see Albert Pujols in there. Uh, but I think you'll see uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of tactical. Uh, alignments here. I mean, the the Giants only have uh, one lefty starter, Alex Wood. Um, so I would imagine that uh, uh, what you saw um, uh, last night in the wild card game is is, is pretty much how it's going to go. They're going to save Pujols for 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 left handed pitching. He had a thirty six WRC plus against righties this year, one forty six against lefties. There's really no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no ambiguity as to as to <laughs> as to picking picking this picking that guy's spots uh, at this stage of his career, um, and you could do what uh, uh, what Dave Roberts did last night and force the issue, um, you know, with by burning a pinch hitter. It's not it's not always an optimal thing, but uh, um, you know the Dodgers loaded their roster last night, uh, you know, for 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 such a possibility, um, and I would uh, I would see if. Uh, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Roberts tries to, you know, tries to maneuver uh, another situation like that where he's got, uh, you know, a good righty uh, bat and and force the lefty and and see what uh, see what the Giants do if uh, uh, if they counter. Max Scherzer, we saw him pitch last night. He went four and a third innings. It took ninety four pitches to do it. I, I don't think it takes a, a, like a truly advanced eye, like a major league pitching coach, to see that. Uh, Max Scherzer is having some mechanical issues. Like he, he's clearly yanking a lot of pitches in both directions, uh, yeah. both in and out. Um, and he struggled down the stretch. He struggled in his last couple of starts in the regular season. Are you and should the Dodgers be concerned about Max Scherzer going forward? I think you have to be. I mean, you know, look, the guy's, the guy's competitive desire is off the charts, um, you know, and, 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 and his knowledge of the hitters as well. Um, but you have to, I think you have to be realistic. And I think, you know, what we, the difference between uh, the Dodgers uh, taking so many early exits in recent years and winning last year, I think, was was that, uh, uh, you know, to, to borrow a phrase from from Joe Sheehan, 
Roberts was managing the guy based on his current abilities rather than managing the career strat card. Um, you know, and that was particularly applicable when it came to Clayton Kershaw. Uh, it has to be applicable when it comes to Max Scherzer as well. You got to, you know, if, if, if your eyes are telling you this guy's not, you know, doesn't have it tonight, you got to go to the bullpen. And, and uh, I think uh, Roberts was vindicated because uh, the bullpen performed phenomenally in the wild card game. Um you know where Scherzer didn't. He was uh, he had a you know a lot of uh, you know a lot of base runners was walking guys hit a guy bullpen hit a guy too. But uh, um, you know they they everybody in that chain did their job and and mm-hmm. I think that the um, uh, you, you know the the Dodgers have faith in in that in that group uh, you know to pick up and you know you don't need Max Scherzer to throw seven innings. I mean if he does throw seven innings you know because he's because he's on you know so much the better. Um, they're going to hopefully. You know, if they're gonna if they're gonna advance, they're gonna hopefully get some of those performances, whether it's Scherzer or Bueller or uh, Urias. But uh, uh, you know, some nights you just gotta grind it out uh, using five pitchers or whatever. Uh, last Dodgers question: Dave Roberts became the Dodgers manager in 2016. In his six seasons at the helm, he's won the division five times, and the one time he didn't win the division, he won 106 games. <laughs> uh, he has a, a World Series title. Uh, rarely talked about as one of the better managers in baseball, often gets a lot of flack. Uh, yes, he has handed a roster that is uh, a, a wonderful combination of money and baseball smarts, but does Dave Roberts deserve to be in that conversation as one of the better managers in baseball? I mean, I think you have to be. Uh, you know, you look, I did this last year after the Dodgers won a championship and, and you know, you know, was comparing their their five year run, which basically coincided with 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 Roberts taking over. It's up there as one of the best in baseball history. Um, you know, it's you certainly have to credit the other areas of the organization. You know, the 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 um, the player development pipeline that's given them so many um, you know strong homegrown guys. Um, you know, and the the uh, uh, ownership for green lighting. You know, the expenditures, uh, uh, the big payrolls, and 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 all that as well, but uh, at the end of the day, Roberts has to has to has to use that, and he has to do it without uh, you know while keeping the egos in check and without losing the clubhouse. And you know, I think his his uh, survival for this long with you know this many superstars and uh, you know figuring out role players as well, uh, I think is, is is testament to that. So yeah, I think he belongs in there. I th- you know I don't know that he's necessarily the best uh, tactical manager in the game. I don't. I think that you know that job has changed so much in terms of. Um, uh, putting uh, interpersonal skills and communication skills ahead of tactical skills, but that's why you have a bench coach and and uh, uh, your other coaches and things like that, and you know you get the input from the front office when it comes to that. So I think yeah, I think he's 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 right there for me. Um, you know, I don't know if he's, I, I would say top five probably. Uh, I don't know uh, if I'm going to anoint him number one, uh, but you know because he doesn't have to, you know. Um, uh, deal with the the resource limitations that some managers have, but uh, he's right there. Are you ready for your non-Dodgers question? Sure. You are a, a very big music fan, and you go to a lot of shows. Do you have a regret? Do you have the, that one concert, indi- that one individual concert that you're still mad you missed, or just even the one band you could have seen that you never saw live? You know, I I am filled with regrets. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I it's um, uh, you know, our our friend Matthew Leach always always uh, has a mantra: always go to the show. Um, and uh, 
Um, there are times when I when I have not heeded that advice, probably times uh, uh, that I should have taken it. And one that really stands out to me right now, um, particularly in the context of, uh, of, the, of the recent past, is I passed up an opportunity to go see the Rolling Stones uh, with Mick Taylor uh, at the Barclays Center, less than a mile away. Uh, I had a friend who flew in from out of town, um, a childhood friend who flew in from out of town, spent the night here, uh, and went to the show. And, and what the fuck was I thinking? Uh, you know, like, it was like, oh, it's $150. Why would I, you know, why, I don't want to, you know, I saw them, I saw them on the Steel Wheels tour in 88. That kind of checked that box for me. I'm a huge Stones fan, but I was sort of like, yeah, you know, I haven't, I haven't listened to any of their new albums and, you know, since Steel Wheels basically. And, and, uh, uh, you know, kind of, you know, I love the Stones, but I don't really need, you know, need to spend that kind of money for, for an oldies act, even if it is Mick Taylor sitting in it. And now I'm like, what the fuck are you thinking? You know, <laughs> they're not, not going to do this again, um, at least in that context. And, and uh, so, yeah, I kind of kicked myself over that one. And and uh, I, I've missed out on on uh, uh, on other shows that were that were, you know, probably would have been special to me. But that right now, that one's really kind of gnawing at me. Jay will let you get back to it. We, we have a playoff game in six hours. Yeah. Uh, and uh, thanks for coming on. And uh, if you want to follow Jay on Twitter, you go where? Uh, Jay Jaffe. Sorry, J-A-Y underscore J-A-F-F-E. Uh, uh, that's my uh, that's my handle. And uh, I'm not tough to find. <laughs> Jay, thanks for coming on. <laughs> sure thing. Welcome back to the show. Our tour around the postseason heads to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and joining us is the Milwaukee Brewers beat writer for that little tiny site called The Athletic. It's Will Salmon. Will, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Fan of, fan of your show, man. Oh, that's the. I should have asked somebody else. Um, right. uh, you're, are you ready for your three questions plus one? I am. Question one. The you know, the big story prior to the Brewers postseason run was Devin Williams uh, punching a wall and breaking his hand. Uh, there's been a lot of, of wailing and gnashing of teeth of that. Um, talked on the show last week about how, if you really think about it, it's probably just 12 outs and, and the marginal difference between Williams, who is really good, and whoever is going to get that work is, is probably not the hugest thing over just 12 outs. But how are the Brewers going to handle that inning getting them to Josh Hader in a game where they're ahead. I think you're right. It's amplified because it happens later in the game, probably. And that's where, you know, people think the game is decided and, you know, it'll be a high leverage situation and whatnot. But without him, um, they could probably, I assume they will probably turn to Brad Boxberger ahead of Josh Hader. Uh, Boxberger was a, guy they signed on a minor league deal in spring training actually didn't make the club out of spring training but has since been really a revelation for this team uh he had a kind of a disappointing or ho-hum september where he gave up about 10 earned runs and struggled with his command but aside from that he had a really solid season has closing experience so that's who that i assume they would turn to but they also have other options like rookie aaron ashby and i say rookie and that's worth pointing out, but Craig Council made the point earlier in the week that, you know, talent could sometimes be much more important than experience. And sometimes uh, collectively we tend to overrate experience around this time of year and neglect that, hey, this person's actually really talented and they should be okay. Um, and that's probably going to be the case with Ashby. He's got tremendous stuff. 
Um, aside from those two guys, uh, they have Hunter Strickland in their bullpen, Jay Cousins. Those are not exactly household names for a lot of people I get. And they also could do something quirky because they're the Brewers and they mm-hmm. like to do that sort of thing. And they could say, they could say, hey, like let's have Adrian Hauser, who has been one of our starters, uh, be our guy in one of the middle or late innings because they have their top three starters and they also have Eric Lauer that they could use um, if they need a number four guy. So they have options. And like you said, it, it probably will be a matter of what – maybe nine to 12 outs or whatever, whatever it comes to, it'll only be a few innings. So in theory, they should be okay. Uh, you know, speaking of, of kind of talent and experience, the question, second questions about their outfield, um, you know, obviously they have Christian Yellick, a former MVP who never really got going this year. Uh, they have Lorenzo Cain, who, who kind of has never got going this year either, at least in the way you normally expect from Lorenzo Cain. Uh, Avisail Garcia has been as expected. Uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. didn't hit, but was wonderful defensively. And then there's Tyrone Taylor, who slugged almost 500 in the second half. How are the Brewers going to configure their outfield this in the postseason? Yeah, I think their A option is probably still Yelich, Kane, and Garcia left to right in their outfield. I would, if I'm them, I'm still putting Jackie Bradley Jr. on my playoff roster, or at least for this series, because he really does wonders for you defensively. You could mix and match. Um, with a righty-lefty in your lineup on pinch hitters and, and such. He's a very good base runner, so he's helpful in those ways. And in the playoffs, again, I, I feel like those things are amplified a little bit where a big defensive play, you know, over the course of 162, maybe that's not as big of a deal um, for one singular game, but here, of course, it is. So I, I like him there. Uh, you're absolutely right with how you described Yelich and Kane. Uh, both have experienced injuries and setbacks. Um, and had been compromised because of those things. But Garcia has been rock solid. Uh, he's been as good as it gets, or close to as good as it gets um, for, the, for the Brewers in the outfield, uh, defensively on the bases, and of course offensively putting up uh, career numbers across the board. Um, so that was, that was good to see for them. And, um, you know, Taylor's one, one of those guys who they may look for more playing time next year, uh, but he's really made the most of his opportunities this season as well. And again, it's five guys in their outfield, but I would assume all five of those guys uh, would be on the roster. Uh, last baseball question. Uh, the Milwaukee Brewers have been in existence since 1970. Uh, they've only made the postseason eight times. Uh, they've never won a World Series. This is their fourth postseason appearance in a row. What are the expectations in terms of kind of Milwaukee, in terms of the fan world? Uh, you know, what's the, kind of the vibe in the city? At what point is this season a success? Do they have to win a World Series? Is it a success now? Do they have to get to the World Series? You kind, of, kind of, you know, how are the fans going to react if this happens or if it doesn't happen? With the Brewers, I feel like there's this sense of we're no longer just happy to be there sort of thing. Whereas maybe a couple of years ago, that was the case and they were happy to make the playoffs and that wasn't the goal. It, internally, I know from the organization standpoint, that's not the goal. And I know that you hear that from a lot of organizations, of course, but with this one in particular, it stands out just because, like I said, it was sort of the goal a couple of years ago. It was the stated goal of us to make the playoffs. Now, now that's no longer enough and that's from ownership on down. Um, from the fans' perspective, I think that they recognize that it was a great regular season. And 
a lot of them didn't really expect to have a great regular season, to be honest. I think a lot of people were down on this team because of their lack of moves in the offseason, and they saw the Cardinals add who they added, and they more or less stood pat um, from a general view of it. Now, if you look at it more closely, they certainly did improve with Colton Wong and um, just made some more, small, smaller changes as well that made big differences. Uh, but anyway, like I, I think from the fans' perspective, uh, they do recognize that it was a great season, but they want more because if they were to get eliminated by the Braves in the NLDS, that would be very, very disappointing. They know how good their starting rotation is, and they look at it as, you know, we are the Brewers, and there's chances are there's probably a window, as much as David Stearns likes to say that he wants to be in the mix every year, there's, there's probably a window because, like, these guys, Peralta, uh, Burns and Woodruff, the latter two especially, um, they're they're going to be free agents one day um, unless they get locked up in extensions uh, prior to. Um, so they look at this as a prime opportunity to to really make a significant and deep run, and anything short of that would be disappointing from the fans' perspective. Uh, your non-Milwaukee Brewers question: You have uh, you are you are a career sports writer, and in the past you have done college work. You've been on both the Mississippi State and University of Florida beat big SEC schools. What do you like better, covering college or pro sports, and why? Without a doubt, it's pro sports. I felt like, as much as I enjoyed the pop circumstance of college football. Um, and we see this nowadays, unfortunately, within pro sports more and more. Um, but things in college sports are so secretive. And it's kind of funny to say that on a baseball show because <laughs> of the inner worlds of baseball these days. It's, it's, it is that way, of course. But, I mean, it's very much one voice. It's the head coach. And nobody speaks other than him in a lot of programs, especially the high-profile ones. Like, that's all you hear. And like, so you don't hear from assistant coaches. You certainly don't hear from players. Now that's starting to change a little bit with the NIL agreement and everything like that. Um, but, I, you know, for me, it's baseball for that reason. Um, and, again, I know that front offices, they're, they're very much, they go the way that the top guy goes. I, I get that. But at least here you are allowed to speak to, say, the hitting instructor, whereas right. in college football – you know, God forbid you speak to the safeties coach um, or have a, a good, candid conversation with him. I mean, you, you better be ready to answer questions on why you even approach that person. Um, so it's just weird. Like, that's weird and that shouldn't be. Um, so this was this is refreshing for me still um, to be able to actually do that and to have, like, normal conversations with, like, adults. Like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's a little bit different for me. So no, 100%. Um, and aside from that, I also, um, with college sports, there's such a limited like way that you could judge things statistically. And, and with baseball, like there's a limitless amount of statistics. And I love that aspect of the game. Um, so it's kind of marrying those two things. Um, gets me fired up to do it. Uh, Will, I want to thank you for coming on. If you want to follow Will during the postseason... On Twitter, he is at Will Salmon, S-A-M-M-O-N, and we'll have a good time in the postseason. I appreciate it, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Welcome back. We now go to the beautiful Bay Area and talk about the San Francisco Giants. And joining me for this on short notice, and God bless for doing it, 
is the co-owner of Fantasy Benefits. He is a writer and podcaster at Fangraphs on the fantasy side of things. He is in beautiful Santa Rosa, California. He's Justin Mason. Justin, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Are you ready for your San Francisco Giants questions? I absolutely am. You are a big Giants fan. You are a, a, a consumer of baseball media in droves. Do you know of anyone who, before the season began, thought this would happen and that the Giants would finish the year with the best record in baseball? Uh, best record in baseball? I think only maybe my wife, uh, <laughs> who likes to think she's a, a, a baseball personality but isn't. Uh, I, I mean, well, she should be now. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had. Uh, put some money on her belief in the Giants. Uh, I, I did not, personally. I thought maybe they would challenge a 500 record this year uh, if things broke their way. But it, on paper, they looked like a 70-win team. And they still look like a 70-win team on paper. I just, I don't know how they, quite how they've done this. So, uh, so here's my question. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like most people were in, in, in your world not expecting much from this team. Um, I'm in that group. And like you spent all season, if you're like me, I spent kind of all season waiting for the shoe to drop here and waiting for the for, for it to all turn back into a pumpkin and for the Dodgers to pass them up and, and, and to, to, to re-enter reality. Uh, like where is kind of Giants vibes at this point? Do they, do they now believe in this team or they're still a little hesitant and, wait, and hoping the shoe doesn't drop in the postseason? I feel like they buy it. I feel I feel like uh, people in the area and uh, and the team really really are buying into what they've been doing. I, I like you have kind of been waiting for the bottom to fall out, uh, and it just never happened. And I'm hoping it doesn't happen in the playoffs. I'd like to see them, you know, get past the Dodgers, get past whoever comes out of the other side of the NL playoffs, and and get to the World Series. Um, but you know. Here's something I've I've said repeatedly over the last decade or so now. Uh, They weren't the best team in 2010. They weren't the best team in 2012. They weren't the best team in 2014. If if people don't want to consider them the best team, that's okay. They've won not being the best team before. Uh, There is, and I don't understand it. Maybe you do. I've just seen some people alluding to it, like a weird little corner of Twitter that thinks the Giants are cheating. Can you explain this one? Uh, I have not heard this one. Oh, good. I'm um, glad. Ooh. I saw, like, Susan Slusser tweeted something about it, and I saw someone else mention it, and there's there seems to be a weird little corner of things that, that, that they're so baffled by what's happening, their only answer is the Giants could be cheating. I mean, I, I guess, I, I figured it would be something <laughs> like devil magic or something. That's uh, the Cardinals. Yeah. Or, who are now I mean, out. It's, it's, it's not even year magic because it's not <laughs> an even year. Maybe the shortened 2020 season means we've carried some even year magic over into 2021. I mean, I, I could understand if people thought like, oh, they got to 90 games. Maybe Maybe there's something going on. But, like, it's hard to fake 107 wins. Right, right. Like, at some point, you just have to go, they're, they've just figured out a way to win. Um, and I hate being the guy that points to intangibles. But, like, that's the only thing I can come up with is 
This is a very well-constructed team. It's a very deep team. Uh, it's a team that picks each other up every night when one guy falters, another guy's there to step up and kind of keep things going because, I mean, on paper, it doesn't make sense. I, I can understand why people would point to cheating, but, you know, where's where's the proof in that pudding? I just, I don't I don't know where that would be coming from. It, it, no, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. Are you ready for your non-baseball question? Absolutely. You are, uh, according to to one of your bios on the internet, uh, a certified addiction specialist and counselor. Yes, I am. We're in, still, unfortunately, in the midst of a pandemic. Um, that pandemic has created things like social isolation, uh, things, uh, additional stresses with, with you know the the way the economy has gone and job losses and things like this. Has the pandemic made your work or or in, made your job uh unfortunately much more busy in the last 18 months yes and no um i mean prior to the coronavirus pandemic there was a pandemic that was just starting to get a little bit of kind of mention in uh in media and in the news and and that was kind of the opiate pandemic that was Mm -hmm. kind of going on prior and it's carried into uh, into the, the, you know, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I think this time has made it very difficult for some people because of the isolation, you know, isolation, uh, is a, is a huge symptom of addiction. Uh, and people tend to want to isolate when, when they're stuck in addiction. It's also helped some people. Some people have been kind of forced into making decisions about their lives because they're stuck, you know, at home, uh, I think it has, it's definitely opened some eyes, I think, for some people that they need to get help um, and have been given the opportunity to do things like online meetings that weren't available at the rate that they're available now. Uh, And, uh, but for others, it's made things a lot more difficult because uh, recovery and people in recovery, um, they need other people and they need human contact and uh, it's harder to get nowadays. And so I think it's been kind of a double-edged sword uh, that some people have uh, probably enjoyed and probably uh, benefited from. I, I have multiple friends who have gotten clean and sober and clients who've gotten clean and sober during the pandemic and it was the best thing for their recovery and others that have really struggled through it. So I think it's kind of depending on the type of person you are in recovery or are in active addiction. Has it, you know, this is a weird question, and I, I know that, but, uh, you know, with, uh, in the in, in the non-drug world, we have supply chain issues. Um, like, is it hard to just go out and get drugs now with the pandemic? And, uh, you know, first of all, you don't want to go out anyway. Um, but, you know, is our people, you know, is it hard to go get drugs? I guess is my question. Um, my understanding, I mean, I, I've been clean and sober for uh, over 16 years, so I don't have uh, firsthand knowledge necessarily, but my understanding is not really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, addicts, uh, I, I tell people that like we could be stranded on a, a deserted island and still figure out a way to get high. Right. So I, I think that um, obviously there are times where, you know, certain things dry up and certain things are, are more readily available. But alcoholics and addicts are pretty persistent, um, and especially with the fentanyl epidemic that's happened here over the last, uh, you know, three years or so, uh, you can you can get high off of such a minuscule amount um, that it's it's become pretty rampant and pretty available. And of course, 
you know, prescription painkillers and prescription drugs are, are mm. readily available even when there is a pandemic. So I think, you know, alcoholics and addicts are resourceful. They, they you know, they figure it out one way or another. So I, I don't think it's, it's cramped too many styles of, of active alcoholics or addicts. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, touching on that subject. If you, if you want to follow Justin on Twitter, he's at Justin Mason, FWFB. And Justin, thanks so much for coming on short notice. Hey, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Welcome back. We continue our postseason jaunt and we go to Tampa Bay. And joining us is a man who has been covering the Rays since before there was a race. <laughs> and he is the long time. Uh, no one's done it longer. Uh, Rays beat writer. Uh, he just does an incredible job. So one guy you got to follow for the uh, Tampa Bay Times. And it is Mark Topkin joining us from his luxurious accommodations in St. Pete Beach. Mark, how are you? Doing all right. Doing all right. Eager to see how these next uh, few days or week or so unfolds. Are you ready for your three questions and the one non-baseball question? I am. You definitely have me intrigued by the suspense factor. <laughs> question number one, the Tampa Bay Rays. How? Oh, that's... okay. That's the question. <laughs> well, it's funny you ask because I literally, uh, when I hang up with you, I'm going to have dinner and then start working on a story for page 1A of the Tampa Bay Times on Thursday morning that's supposed to address that question. So I guess I will. this will allow me to gather my thoughts here. But how, uh, it's funny, in 2008, I asked that question of Carlos Pena. And he said, how is the question of the ages? And, and it might still be. Um, they are smart. They are fearless. They are willing to make unpopular decisions. They see the game a little differently. Uh, many teams are catching up with many of these things that they're doing, as you well know, and, and better than I. Uh, but they keep finding new frontiers to venture out upon. Today, in fact, uh, we found out that the starting rotation for the ALDS against the mighty Yankees or the mighty Red Sox, as we record this, will be uh, two rookies and a guy who's only not a rookie because of the weird way they did service time for last year, and Shane McClanahan, Shane Boz, and Drew Rasmussen. And that's your Tampa Bay Rays in a nutshell right there. And there's their three starters for the postseason uh, in the first round. So they have really good players. They use complementary lineups, as you know. They use platoons. They maximize platoon advantages both ways uh, in how they set up their lineup to not get boxed in by pitchers and how they set up their lineup to pinch hit at any moment they'll pinch it for anybody they pinch it for brandon lau who might be their team mvp and might finish in the top 10 in the american league they don't care they just do what they have to do to win games and it doesn't always work and we can only go back to game six of last year's world series to point out how a relatively fearless type decision backfired but that's tampa bay Rays baseball uh question two is is related i was talking to a, a guy with a team who does a lot of advanced work and he's had to advance the Rays. And the one thing that really struck him beyond just kind of how good they were was just a culture they had created among their pitchers. Um, I don't have the number in front of me, but they have used 328 pitchers this year. Um, <laughs> 327 of them have been really, really good. Um, and the point he made is like, you know, pitchers are used to roles and pitchers like roles. And the Rays have, have developed this culture, um, first of all, that guys come up and go down which can create a, a bad environment it's in, with some teams, but seemingly doesn't here. 
And also that guys don't have roles. Their role seemingly is no role. All these guys seem as ready for the second inning as they are for the ninth. Do you have any insight into how they've kind of created that that mindset? Well, I, I think it kind of just goes back to being, you know, the anti-establishment philosophy of, of not having the closer. They've done it. I mean, they had Rafael Soriano uh, for one year, and, and he had a monster year. That was right after the the owner of the team said, there's not going to be a $7 million closer walking in the door anytime soon. And like 40 days later, they acquired a $7 million closer. <laughs> so it was almost like they were going to go against their own word just to be different. But no, they, they don't want to do a closer. They don't want to do the commitment. They think that bullpen is the least predictable part of the game from a year-to-year basis. Uh, and, and they think a lot of guys can do it really well. They're, they're like Oprah with saves this year. You get one, you get one, you get one. There's 14 guys with saves this year, and that's part of how they do this. They get these guys to buy it. Look, Lewis Head was going to be out of baseball. He was starting to sell <laughs> solar panels door-to-door in Arizona, which I don't know. He says he did really good. I don't even like let those people, when they call, like, good past hello – there's no way I'm opening the door, inviting a guy in and buying solar panels for him. He said he was good at it. I don't know. Maybe he is. But they go, hey, you want to come to camp with us? We know last year we were interested in you last year. You went to Seattle. They released you in May after the shutdown. You haven't been throwing. So Lewis Head, to his credit, says, I'm not ready to throw. I've been selling solar panels. Can you give me a couple weeks? They're like, eh, it's going to be right before the start of camp. He goes, well, I don't, it's not going to help if I throw now. Oh, what the heck? It's the last. It's literally like the last spot in the camp roster. Lewis Head has been up twelve times this year and sat down twelve times and pitched like a twenty-seven games, I think it is, and really good, really well. <laughs> and I mean, look, you couldn't send an established veteran up and down twelve times. You would have people. He'd be mad. The people in the clubhouse would be mad. But Lewis Head has no leverage. Lewis Head is thankful. He makes, I think, I figured it out, thirty-three hundred dollars a day when he's in the big leagues and five hundred dollars a day when he's in AAA. Yeah, I'd go back and forth too. I mean, his only regret, he forgot to sign up for frequent flyer miles at the start of the year. <laughs> oh, man, that's a rookie mistake right there. Exactly. But so that they, they get these guys to buy in. Do, do they, quote, unquote, use and abuse them a little bit? Sure. I, I guess you could say that if you wanted to look at it from that standpoint. But they they value these guys. They Think how many guys have come here and gone somewhere else that weren't going to play anymore or weren't going to be in the big leagues anymore or weren't going to make any money. I mean, they turn these guys around. They've been doing it since Jim Hickey was here. Kyle Snyder, it's like the the um, restoration factory. <laughs> uh, last raised question. Um, I don't live in Tampa. I've certainly been there many times. But uh, from the outside, uh, one thing the Rays are known for is their stadium and their lack of attendance and constant stories of moving or, or, or playing half of their games in Montreal or whatever. Uh, beyond the, the, the obvious attendance problem, you can see every time you turn a Rays game on, what is their kind of cultural footprint in the city of Tampa? Is the city excited about the postseason? Do they do well in terms of like TV and radio ratings? Well, Kevin, part of part of the answer to your question is there's a flaw in your question. Is it's not just the city of Tampa. The problem is it's the community of Tampa Bay, and it's a fractured area. There's some pettiness that goes on. There's some <laughs> parochialness that goes on. It's it's Minneapolis St. Paul with a giant body of water in between them. Like, right. And and the, the amount of, like, the people that complain they can't get over the bridge, you'd think they were driving to Key West or something. I mean, it's a <laughs> it's a 15-minute drive over the bridge. But, you know, I have people te- tweeting me or whatever, I can't go to the game because it takes me two and a half hours. The next day, somebody tweets from Winter Haven. He made it in 90 minutes. Like, it didn't take you two and a half hours from Tampa. You're exaggerating. But people from Tampa don't want to come to this side. And it's the same thing. I mean, the hockey arena... 
the football stadium, the airport, the best mall are all in Tampa. I live in St. Pete Beach. It takes me 45 minutes. You get in the car and you go. But there's a lot of that. So it's a fractured community. There's no one downtown. There's no one population base. Where the stadium is, if you want to be kind of picky about it, if you draw a circle around the stadium, say a 30-minute commute or a 45-minute, whatever you want, or your radius, 20-mile radius, you got a lot of fish in that circle. They don't come to games. Mm-hmm. So that is part of the issue. They probably would be better served with a stadium on the Tampa side, more in the central population base, closer to Lakeland, closer to Orlando, but further from the people in St. Pete and further from the people in Bradenton, Sarasota. The thing is, Kevin, the Rays people that own the team are really smart. You can think whatever you want of them, and people here have many colorful adjectives and descriptions, but they are really smart. And if they thought that was the answer, they would be in a stadium in Tampa by now. Right. I don't think they're convinced the market's going to do it. TV TV ratings are really good. Radio ratings are really good relative to the market size. It's a good market. It's a top 13 market in the country, but it's not working. People are not coming to the games. And too many people think that doesn't matter anymore, which is obviously a flaw in thinking too. So a quick follow-up then before I ask you your non-baseball question. Uh, Five years from now, the 2026 season, how many – games in the tampa st pete area will the rays play zero half or 81 in the 2026 season they'll play 81 games at tropicana field okay you ready for your non-baseball question i am you're at the bar it's karaoke night what are you singing oh i am so the sports baseball sports writer cliche here you're you're, you're playing a springsteen song aren't you gonna sing born to run because i know the words (laughs) i that's i am so into that cliche the only and i will add this though the only time i've ever sung karaoke because i am the least musically talented person i i'm the person at the concerts who has to watch other people clapping to know when to clap at a concert (laughs) My wife and I sang Crocodile Rock. We were on a cruise once. We figured there's no way anyone on the cruise will know us. Our daughter was with us, and we told her, if you video this and send it out, you are done. We are cutting you off. So that was the only way we even did that was just a thousand percent assurance no one would have any record of us singing karaoke. That's how bad I am. But yes, that would be it. I would be the total baseball writer cliche. If you are listening to the show and you know Mark's family and can get a hold of that video, <laughs> chinmusic at fangraphs.com. If you want to follow Mark on Twitter, you can do so. He is at tbtimes underscore rays. Mark, thanks so much and enjoy the postseason. Anytime. You got it, Kevin. 